Hello, and welcome to the Groovy Writer Podcast, where we explore how to find your writing groove, regardless of your circumstances. I'm your host, author and MFA instructor, Nicole McGinnis. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. It is good to be back after a fairly long hiatus. I've had several classes going and life and everything else, so it's good to be back to recording this episode. Today, I want to do a bit of an overview, and it seems like every time I do some sort of overview, it turns into a much more complex episode than I want it to, especially with today's topic. That's going to be hard to avoid, because today I want to talk in as general terms as I possibly can about traditional publishing and what it's all about, why people decide to do it, what can often be expected once a writer sets off on that road, etc. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Much of what I will talk about today is the result of questions I have fielded over the years, over and over from students, from other writers, from writers just starting out who want to know what traditional publishing is all about. I've had two novels traditionally published. Both of them were young adult novels, otherwise known as YA. I've worked with different editors. I have worked with different publishing houses. And so I hardly have an exhaustive knowledge of what traditional publishing is, but I do have A, my own experiences in that world and hopefully ongoing world of traditional publishing as I continue to create projects and get them out there, etc. And also years and years worth of research. And that's one of the reasons it's hard for me to sort of encapsulate this in very brief, broad, general terms. But let's give it a shot. Often writers decide to traditionally publish as opposed to, say, self-publishing because they realize that self-publishing is a lot of work. Some writers also see traditional publishing as more prestigious, which it may or may not be. It just depends on one's point of view. There are self-published authors who have done very, very well and who have plenty of prestige to their name. But that is one common view of traditional publishing, that it's it's a step up, it's more prestigious. I think one of the biggest, though, is that you don't have to do as much outside of the writing when you have your work traditionally published as you do typically when you're self-publishing, where you are everybody. You're the author, you're the marketer, you're the publicist, you're the cover designer, unless, of course, you hire those things out, which some do and some don't. And finally, it's a pretty well-established trope, let's say, that image of holding a copy of your own published book in your hands for the first time. Maybe it's sitting on the shelf of a bookstore and you pull it off the shelf and you look at it and you turn the pages. I've had that experience a couple times and it's actually super gratifying and super fun. So there's a reason I think that it's one of sort of the biggies in terms of why writers decide that they want to be traditionally published. It's super exciting frankly, to be published, I would say especially that first time by one of the big publishing houses. This group of publishing houses used to be known as the Big Six. They may even be the Big Four by now, just due to mergers. I think recently they have become the Big Four. Let's see, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Hachette, and Penguin Random House. I'm pretty sure they are the Big Four now because they just seem to keep consolidating. Although, There are many smaller houses also. There are regional publishing outlets, depending on where in the country or in the world you live. There are academic presses. So these are just 
a few of the small to medium options that exist outside of the big four, the big five, the big six. And these are entities that would still be considered traditional publishing, even though they are smaller, with less staffing, less budget, etc. One thing I would say is that all of these types of publishers, regardless of size, have some things in common. And one of the big things they have in common is a process by which they acquire manuscripts from authors. For the purposes of clarity, I will mainly be talking about long-form fiction in this episode, so novels, for example. So there's always a process to be completed, sort of a gauntlet that the author needs to run, the writer needs to run, in order to publish with really any type of traditional publisher. And again, this is not the case for writers who are interested in self-publishing, because pretty much anything goes. They can do whatever that you you want to write, whatever you want to write, edit it to whatever extent you want it edited, design the cover however you want to. You can pretty much do whatever you want, but that's not the case in traditional publishing. There are more rigid guidelines and rules and norms, let's say. And for those who are more interested in not having all of those externally imposed constraints, the good news, if you are interested in uh, self-publishing, there are just a ton of excellent resources out there for anyone who's interested in doing that. It's definitely not my area of expertise, although I have learned quite a bit about self-publishing over the years, but there are so many wonderful souls who have put out great information, videos, interviews, websites, blog posts, etc. regarding self-publishing. One of those, and I'd, I'd love to promote her work a little bit here because she's actually been instrumental in my learning about self-publishing. Her name is Jamie Gray, J-A-M-I-G-R-A-Y. And I share her work with my students and I encourage you to check out her website as well. Her website is jamiegray.com. She's written so many books. She's extremely prolific. She has audiobooks and she has a blog. So she's very prolific and very well versed in the world of self publishing. And she, in my view, is an example of someone who has done it very, very well. There are many others, of course. So find what resonates with you if you are more interested in self publishing. Bringing it back to this episode what traditional publishing basically entails, what that process basically looks like for a writer who has decided to commit to that traditional publishing path. And boy, it is a commitment. Let me just tell you, it's almost like the more you learn about traditional publishing as a new potential author, and I distinguish writers and authors by whether or not one has been published. So a writer is someone who is a writer, an author is someone who has been published. So if you are an aspiring author who has not yet been published, one of the things you're likely to find is that the more you start to learn about traditional publishing, the more you realize how much there is to learn. It's really a massive field of study. The good and possibly not so good news is, again, there's a ton, there's a plethora of websites, books, videos. There's so much information about traditional publishing. That's great. But on the other hand, you really need to start to learn how to narrow it down for your own purposes, because studying what to do when you decide you want to be traditionally published can become almost like a part-time job for some people, maybe even a full-time job. So it's good when you can start to narrow down your vision for your own work, the likely market for your own work, etc. 
So here's a good place to start. And as I mentioned, anyone who wants to be traditionally published, whether with a large house, a regional house, an academic press, etc., there are some pretty standard steps that need to be followed. And step one is often simply deciding as a writer that you want to be traditionally published, if at all possible. Maybe you keep an ace in the hole that I'll try it for this long, maybe I'll give it two years, and if it doesn't work out, then I'll self-publish, for example. That's not uncommon. Just be aware that an entirely different skill set is required for self-publishing. So I think it's hard either way, frankly. But it can also be super gratifying, and the carrot on the stick is that dream of the finished product. I do think that's fairly universal. So once you as the writer have decided, yes, I want to pursue traditional publishing, the next step, and let's just call it a step, because it so often follows that first decision, and then you start researching, you start reading up, maybe you start developing a plan of action, and then you dive into research, and there can be a sort of disillusionment that sets in once you start to realize how many more decisions you're going to need to make, and not necessarily in the long run. There are some pretty big decisions that really need to be made right off the bat. One of the first typical big decisions is whether or not you want to secure representation from a literary agent. This is really at least one podcast episode in itself. As with so many aspects of writing, there are many people who have said many great things on this topic, really many helpful things on this topic. But let's see if I can add to it a little bit here, again, without getting off into the weeds too much. I personally have a very strong preference on the to have or not to have a literary agent issue. I do believe that having an agent is really important for writers who want to be traditionally published. There are a number of reasons for that. And again, I'm going to go into those in detail in a later episode. But nevertheless, it's something I feel strongly about, but it's not a requirement to have an agent. It will open some doors that will otherwise not be open to you. For example, some editors will not accept or even look at what is called an unagented submission. Let me unpack this a bit. Let me back up and first start off with the term editors. What do I mean when I'm talking about editors? So an editor is someone who, of course, edits books, as the name implies. But what is the difference between an editor and a literary agent. The simplest way to think about this, in my opinion, is to think of a real estate transaction. You are the owner of the property in question, in this case, a manuscript. The literary agent is just like a real estate agent. Their job is to connect you with buyers so that you can get a good offer on your property. Your real estate agent sells your property for you, and then they get a cut for their work. They basically don't make any money until you, the seller, makes money. The editor, in this analogy, is the buyer. They're out there looking for properties. They're interested in manuscripts. Agents submit manuscripts to editors. Publishing is, while it's sort of behemoth on one hand, it's also a very small world. Agents and editors know each other, especially in New York, New York City. It's sort of the heart of publishing, and it's on one hand a gigantic world in terms of these massive conglomerates, these massive publishing house conglomerates, but it's also a very small world personally in that agents and editors are constantly making connections. 
Okay, so agents are constantly trying to sell their clients' work, the authors they represent, to these editors at publishing houses. So ideally, you get this great property. Let's see it. Let's compare a, a beautifully edited manuscript to a well-staged home that's in great shape. You find a real estate agent who says, "Yep, I can sell this property." Well, these days, it seems like properties are selling like hotcakes, but this is 2021, by the way, summer when this episode is being recorded. So anyone listening five years from now, that might not be the case. But the agent says, yes, I can sell this. They submit it to an editor, or usually they, they will do this in rounds, submit it to several editors. And hopefully there is an offer or multiple offers. And if you're really lucky, there's a bidding war. But again, subject of another episode, I got to rein it in here. So that is the difference between agents and editors. Agents sell writers manuscripts to editors at publishing houses who make an offer, buy the manuscript, work with the author to make it as strong as it can be. And there's a whole a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen before it becomes a book that is on bookstore shelves. Again, that's probably several episodes worth of information there eventually. So a literary agent is basically someone who brokers the transaction on behalf of the writer. Sometimes these editors at publishing houses are acquiring editors, which basically means they can make offers on manuscripts they like right off the bat. They can just acquire them directly. They can say, yes, I like this work. I want to work with this author. I want to make an offer on this manuscript and let's do this. Other times there are editors that are not acquiring editors. I've had books sold to both. A non-acquiring editor basically doesn't have that agency to buy a manuscript. They basically, there's often a committee, they have to go into meetings with others at the publishing house, and there has to be sort of a group decision made on whether or not to purchase the manuscript. So when you have a literary agent, they're able to really navigate those waters with both acquiring editors and non-acquiring editors, and they're able to do that on your behalf. So you're not trying to negotiate your own sale, your own deal, your own submissions, let's start off with two houses that there's basically a David and Goliath kind of story potentially. So that right there alone, in my view, would be enough reason to retain the services of a literary agent. But there are so many other reasons. Again, I'll do an episode on agents and that relationship. But things can quickly get very complex when you have a manuscript that an editor or editors are interested in. And an agent is someone who, a good agent is someone who is well-trained and very capable of navigating those waters. So do you need to have a literary agent to sell your manuscript? You do not. But as I mentioned earlier, there are editors, and I would venture to say in this day and age, maybe the vast majority, if not then the majority of editors out there at publishing houses, especially the big four and medium to large size houses and all those imprints of the big four that will not accept unagented submissions. So in other words, they won't even talk to you. They won't even look at your work unless you have a literary agent. And the reason for that is really, really simple. Agents act as great filters for editors, especially if you as a writer don't yet have a track record. There aren't enough hours in the day for them to wade through all of the submissions that they would get if they just open themselves up to submissions. I mean, hundreds, thousands a week, who knows, but many, many potentially. So many of them won't even deal with you without an agent. Some do though, and it's worth researching if you're not interested in having an agent. Obviously my preference regarding agents is clear for that reason alone. 
there are many other reasons as well. It's up to the author to accept an offer, but once you do accept an author on your manuscript, there's a whole contract negotiation process that begins at that point. If you are particularly well-versed in contracts, which some authors are, some writers are, who have never had anything published. I've worked with these writers. They feel very comfortable negotiating contracts. Of course, publishing contracts are sort of in their own category, so you'll want to make sure that you are well-versed or have retained counsel, someone who is well-versed in negotiating publishing contracts. But a literary agent is someone who, that's what they do. They negotiate publishing contracts. And publishing contracts can be extremely complex, especially if it's your first time encountering one. So a literary agent is likely to engage at times some fairly intense and in-depth contract negotiations. I've had this happen, and I was very, very grateful to have a literary agent to do that. I would venture to say that most authors are probably not terribly well-equipped for intense publishing contract negotiation right out of the gate. And it's also not in a publisher's best interest to get the best deal for you. It is in the publisher's best interest to get the best deal for the publisher. This can include where the rights go, different cuts of each book sold, percentages of ebooks and audiobooks, subsidiary rights. It, it gets very complex very quickly. And finally, an overarching reason why many writers at this juncture, after having decided to really go for it and pursue traditional publishing, a big reason why many writers want to have a literary agent is and I think this is a really important one. It's basically because an agent is ideally someone who is right there. They're in your corner, communicating with you about your work, keeping you up to date on the process, about what's happening, especially if you're a new author, a new potential author, I should say, debut, potential debut author with a manuscript out there on submission. It can be a very fraught time. An agent is someone who can help guide you through that a little bit and listen to you and give you some ideas. Also, if you have an agent who is considered to be an editorial agent, that means they can also help you develop the manuscript and really make it shine before it even goes out on submission. It's like a real estate agent who also knows how to stage homes beautifully. They don't always go hand in hand, but when they do, it can be a real added bonus. So suffice it to say that this question of whether or not to try to secure the services of a literary agent is really one of the very, very big, I would say the biggest, first decisions you're going to have to make if you want to have your work traditionally published. And as a closing note for anyone who is definitely interested in this, and I think for good reason, I unfortunately need to inform you if you don't know already, it's typically not easy to get a literary agent. In fact, it can be as hard as getting an editor at a publishing house to buy your manuscript. It's not great news to hear. Agents do not make money until a book sells, so until the writer makes money. And so you do not simply go out and hire a literary agent in the sense that you pay money up front or you pay them some sort of a fee. Agents who do charge fees are to be given wide berth. I will talk more about that in the agenting episode that I will put together at some point. But for now, suffice it to say, it's easy for the search for a literary agent and putting together the materials that you need to put together in order to do this to become at least a part-time job. So prepare yourself for that if you do not yet have an agent and you're going to go down that road. So even if you've decided that you don't necessarily need to have a literary agent, you're fairly secure in your ability to negotiate contracts, to deal with whatever might come up when dealing with a publisher directly. 
and I use the terms publisher and editor somewhat interchangeably. So when I'm talking about dealing with a publisher, I also mean dealing with an editor at a publishing house. I know the terminology can be a bit confusing, but there you have it. So if you decide I'm comfortable doing that, I can do all my own negotiations, I can deal with a contract, I don't need an agent to hold my hand or tell me it's going to be okay when I'm certain that my writing is terrible and that it will never see the light of day, etc., etc., even then you still are going to have to put together a sort of, let's call it a packet, you're going to have to put together certain materials in order to submit your work directly to editors slash publishers, even if you're going to bypass literary agents completely. Those materials include whether you decide to have an agent or decide to pursue having an agent or not. You must, if you are a fiction writer, no question 100%, if you are a writer of novels or novellas, you must hear me people, must, 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 before querying agents or submitting your work directly to editors, you must have a fully complete, beautifully edited, polished to within an inch of its life manuscript. It cannot be a rough draft. It cannot be an idea of a manuscript. It cannot be an outline of this grand, great American novel. Your manuscript needs to be complete. Here is where I'm going to take just a really quick little exit off this publishing interstate and get onto the frontage road of nonfiction writers. If you are a nonfiction writer, let's say you're writing a self-help book or a wellness book or just anything that's not fiction, you get a nice little bonus here. And that is that nonfiction books are very often sold via proposal. So chapters might be outlined, the concept is articulated, your platform, which again, topic for another episode, perhaps, but super important in nonfiction, your platform needs to be articulated and laid out. Why are you the person to write this book? Perhaps you're a renowned doctor, a celebrity of some sort, a politician, I'll refrain from comments there. But basically, you have a platform. You're renowned in your field. You're renowned in the public sphere, whatever the case. Platform is huge for nonfiction writers. And again, these books typically do not have to be completed. But for fiction writers, especially here I am, I'm taking the on-ramp. I'm getting back on the interstate. See, I can do this. I can keep myself reined in. For fiction writers, especially long form, it is imperative that your work is completely edited before you even think about querying agents submitting your work to editors. I know this can seem sort of unfair, and I think it is frankly really unfair to spend potentially years writing and perfecting a manuscript, maybe a 100,000 word manuscript, 150,000 word manuscript. And yes, manuscripts in publishing are discussed in terms of word count, not in terms of page count because page count is sort of arbitrary. It can, depending on the font used in, in a finished product, the spacing, etc. But word count does not change. So let's say you've spent three years of your life crafting this 150,000 word, you know, fantasy tome, and you it just blood, sweat, and tears. And at the same time, you're raising kids, and you have a full-time job, and yada, yada, yada. You go to find an agent or submit it to editors, that rejection when, not if it comes, and I'm not saying you, you're not going to ultimately be successful, but rejection is a big part of this process. It hurts. It can be agonizing. And yet that is nevertheless the case. You don't have to necessarily have that large of a project completed, but you do have to have a project 
that is lengthwise specific to the genre and or category in which you're writing, complete it. If you've been a member of a writer's group and you've been passing drafts of this around, you have one or more great beta readers, you are fortunate indeed. I've talked about that in previous episodes, but it must, must be complete. It's just really one of those calculated risks that we take as fiction writers. I have definitely been there. I have spent a year, two years on a few projects that ultimately never saw the light of day, and probably for good reason, but it still stings. It stings to spend that time and have to do it all up front. You have to front load all that work and then have it not sell. That's really hard, but it is part of the deal. And I think people should know that going in to the traditional publishing route. Here's where many people say, okay, I've tried querying this thing to get an agent. I've tried sending it directly to editors. I'm not getting anything but rejections. I'm going to look into self-publishing. Totally valid choice. And I would venture to say that there's a huge chunk of the self-publishing market that involves authors who have made that choice. And it can be a great option. So it's always there if you need it. It's sort of like when you're at Disneyland and you are going on what used to be the Tower of Terror, RIP Tower of Terror. I loved that ride. I wish they hadn't, I guess they didn't tear it down. They changed it. But all along the way, because the line can be very long. You can be standing in line for an hour or more. But every once in a while, there's an exit door. You decide, I can't take it. I, I can't do this. It's too horrific. It's too terrifying and overwhelming. You just bop right out that door. Same kind of thing in publishing. You're never stuck. Well, maybe once you sign a contract, you're somewhat stuck. But up until that point, if you start to decide that this process is too much for you, I don't fault you for that. It's really hard. And it can take years and years. All right, I got to stay on this interstate. The difficulty of this journey and the difficulty that writers start to recognize when they seriously set out on this journey and get serious about researching and getting their work together and getting their materials together that they need to move forward is one of the big reasons you will hear me encouraging you frequently on this podcast in different episodes to never, ever lose sight of why you wanted to become a writer in the first place. Never lose sight of the joy that you find in the process of writing because there can be a lot of discouragement, disappointment involved. And I just, I say that not to be a Debbie Downer, but I just don't want to sugarcoat things. It can really be hard to work on a project that you really believe in. You've really fallen in love with these characters, for example, and then ultimately have it not traditionally published if that was your dream. So stay open-minded about different avenues of getting your work into the hands of readers. And please, please never lose your connection with your love for writing. It can be pretty easy for that to erode in this business side of the process. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Groovy Writer Podcast. You can connect with the podcast on my website at nicolemcinnis.com and on Instagram at The Groovy Writer. The intro and outro music is Retro by Wayne Jones. Until next time, write on, Groovy Writers. Write on. <laughs>